This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi everybody, it's Doc from the John Freakamere Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. Mountains are like the great equalizer. It doesn't matter who anyone is or what they do. Jimmy Chin. They saw that I really had a passion. And growing up in Detroit during that time and still in Detroit it's very turbulent and it's very scary and I'll just give you some context to that my best friend in fifth grade passed away in a drive-by shooting so um you know and that was that was something that was of the norm I remember seeing metal detectors going into my school earlier on so you're kind of already put in that kind of system and my grandparents realized like an only way for me to actually make it was actually for me to not be there anymore and I say to people, the first mountain I ever climbed wasn't one in an exotic location or in America. It's it's 770 Asbury Park, Detroit. That was the first mountain I climbed, getting off that block. 
um, and it took a village. Um, not again, when you think of like a base camp of like people around you, that those people were my base camp, and they really helped me out. So um, I had to make a hard decision as a, a child um, coming out of fifth grade to talk to my mom and my grandparents, and they gave me the opportunity to leave. And um, my grandparents said, "Hey, you're gonna come with us, live with us," and uh, and it was a very tough thing to do. But that opportunity gave me the opportunity to become the first person in my family tree to ever go to college, and it, it changed the trajectory of what you know that 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 path that would have happened if I never really made it out of that mountain per se. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freaking Muir Pod. Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail. I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Let's start off with a reminder. If you are enjoying the podcast, take just a minute and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not enjoying the pod, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right. I'm very excited about this week's guest who has been featured on in Outside Magazine and Gear Junkie, and he has an epic quest for himself, which we will get into in just a bit. Named by Outside Magazine as one of their five new trail stars, it's my pleasure to welcome Andrew King to the pod. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm good, John. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm doing great. Doing great. Fantastic. Hey, before we get too far down the trail, I just want to ask, um, do you have any backpacking experience? Because I'm not sure what the protocol is in mountaineering, but in through hiking, people pick up trail names. And so that's the real reason I'm asking, because here on the pod, we, we, we go by, by uh, trail names. So, um, I Do I have backpacking experience? Yes, I do. And I don't have a nickname though, so if you ask for that, I really don't. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll just we'll just go by Andrew or Andy or Drew. You have a preference? Uh, Andrew. I prefer you know Andrew is uh, you know my mom and grandmother fought over that name, so I'm going to keep that one. <laughs> nice, nice. You know, I have a son named Andrew, and he is not an Andy, and he's not a Drew, at least in our family. I don't know what his friends call him, but uh, he's definitely an Andrew. So I, I totally get that. Cool. Now, have you listened to the podcast at all? I have, and I, <clears throat> I have, and I actually think it's one that it, everyone else should listen to as well, because the way that you're actually asking questions to your, um, those that have been on this podcast and for your audience, it's, it's very enlightening to understand the different dimensions of how someone falls in love with nature and their journey through nature from the ocean to the sea to how they see the trees. I think it's been a beautiful podcast to listen to, so... Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. So if you've listened to a few episodes, you know that we have a regular segment on the pod that's called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. And that comes towards the end of the episode. So I I just want to prepare you that uh, we get towards the end, I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, hey, Andrew, uh, what is your Pro Tip Insight of the Week? What can you share with our listeners to make their next adventure, their next outing, uh, even that much more epic? And so don't be surprised by that. And usually it's something that comes out of the free flow conversation that, that you and I are going to have during the, during the episode. I'm excited for that. I, I think I, I look forward to that and I have something in mind to hopefully 
makes everyone else's life outdoors safer, calm, and more a better experience. So looking forward to it. Great, great. All right, we've added a new feature this season, and I'm calling it uh, your must-bring gear review. So I know with mountaineering, uh, as well as with uh, other disciplines you may be in, involved with, there, you know, there's a lot of equipment out there. There's a lot of gear. And so I want to see if I can pin you down on a particular piece of gear that is your favorite, you can't do without, you have to bring it. And is there a particular brand uh, of that gear that you prefer? And you know, just tell us a little bit about it. So just a, just a couple minute gear review here. Yeah, I think if there's one thing I, I want to bring with me on each hike or expedition, that's land or sea. It actually, this is a new thing, that, the new gear that just came out. Um, it's the Hoka 10-9 um, hiking boot. And the reason why I say that is because that boot for me is the first boot that isn't just a built of sustainable material that's giving back to all the things I love about nature around me when I'm in a, on an expedition. It actually is one of the first boots that keep my foot very secure, my heel really locked in. And I, I don't really have to out where if I'm going to supinate over like, you know, over supinate or pronate. It's very, it's an all around good boot for me. Um, and I just love the way it looks too. And, and I can say that with confidence because recently as I was just training, today in the hills I, I had another a different boot on and I was training in it and I could feel a little bit something sharp in my heel and I had a heel injury a few months back but when I put the 10 nines back on it's like walking on clouds again so that is my <laughs> one thing I would say um if you are a backpacker or hiker for sure that is a boot that I've come to love all the way so the Hoka 10 nines very yeah, good nines for sure all right thank you very much now I want to talk a little bit about how we, we came to set up this, uh, this episode and how we got to know each other. And that is, I was, uh, I was going through, you know, my different subscriptions and I was taking a look at outside magazine and I saw, you know, that you'd been named a new trail star by outside magazine. And then I did a little further research and discovered that you were also featured in gear junkie and reading that gear junkie article, I discovered that, uh, Hoka actually let you take over its Instagram account for for a bit. That's coming up, so yeah, you will be seeing that soon. I will okay. be over, and you'll be seeing a little bit life into what it's like to train. And you know, they gave me the the ability to you know, uh, yeah, be on top of their Hoka Instagram for the day and have a story into what my life is like training, climbing from the ocean to the sea to in the gym. So yeah, it's it's going to be pretty interesting. So that's yeah, that's yeah, it's very cool. So I saw all this and I, I reached out to you on, on Instagram, just DM'd you out of the, out of the blue and uh, you were kind enough to get back to me and said, heck yeah, let's do this. And so I want to thank you for that. I really appreciate that. But how, how did all of this come together in terms of the coverage by Outside Magazine, by Gear Junkie, by Hoka? It seems to all have converged right here at the right time for you. It's interesting. So, yeah, so I've been doing, I've been climbing um, for over about what? since my mid twenties, well over a decade at this point now. Um, and the way that it all came down is it was a very turbulent time in the United States, as many of you would know or listen to as you know, too, it's, you know, you know, from the pandemic to social change that was coming down. And uh, I've always been one to be very, you know, observe of the times and see when it's actually the best time to articulate my, not only my feelings, but where I think the future is going for people of color. Um, and I was asked to actually speak at a protest in Los, like downtown city hall of Los Angeles. 
And I spoke to the truth and from my heart of what it felt like to be an African-American male in society at that time. It was very turbulent after seeing what's happened with George Floyd. And the speech went pretty viral where people could see it. And they're like, that is Andrew speaking there. I'm usually this calm meditative guy in the meetings, you know, bow tied. And it really, it really resonated with people because I've always felt that way. And I've always had the nature and the outside experience to feel that. Um, and one of my colleagues sent it over to someone at Hoka and, and they're like, wow, this guy is actually traveling the world, not just climbing the conquer mountains. He's wanting to connect with people. And uh, Hoka and their team reached out to me and they said, hey, would you like to get some, you know, gear together and like see what you do? And it, it started from that and it went from Hoka to Black Diamond to Aceta Summit and other brands reached out. And I, I really just made sure I stayed to what my core values were for Brit building together the Batoon Worlds project over the years. And it went from there and I'm glad and always grateful. And the Hoka team knows this as well as Black Diamond and Cedar Summit to find teams that really understood what that speech meant. And I articulated it well to say, I want to be beyond social media. And I, I challenged other people hearing that to be beyond just the hashtag, to be beyond just what we see today. And I just said, over climbing the mountains over the years, I don't, I'm going to go ahead and stand for just not social injustice for climate change, sexism, racism on top of these mountains. You're not just going to see a man stand on top of a mountain. Uh, you're going to see someone connect with the individuals through these communities that helped me get there. And that evolved to where we are today where people are saying like, um, this is Andrew Alexander King and this is what I stand for. And it's always for the people, um, you know, people of color as well as people that have been marginalized to people that really just want to be outdoors and safe. So that's how we are. Fantastic story. And we've got a segment coming up later on uh, where we're going to talk about your Between Worlds project. I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So let's take a, a, a bit of a, a deep dive, medium dive, deep dive, I don't know, uh, about your background growing up. Uh, you have uh, kind of an unusual path to, to where you got where you are today. And so maybe we start out with your childhood, just talk about growing up and uh, family yeah. and you know, the, the moves that you had to make uh, as a child. Yeah, you know, that is that um, first things first, I appreciate us talking into that. And I hope it relates to other listeners as well. But I was born in Detroit to an amazing mom, um, single mom, single parent. Um, I've never met my dad and I hold nothing against that individual. I, I'm grateful that he exists because he created me in that time he spent with my mom, actually for me to exist on this earth. Um, and I was raised by a village and that village was my grandparents, my mom, my brother, you know, they really, my uncles, they really were the people that really distilled in me to be a human being versus just a human doing. And what I mean by that, they, they really showed me what it means to be a strong woman in society and what it takes to make sacrifice, how to provide and have compassion. Also what it meant to really, you know, struggle through a marginalized society of uh, being born into a very turbulent environment. And so my, my journey has been nothing but nothing linear. It's been ebbs and flows, it's been a roller coaster. And like I told my mom the other day, it's, it's, I'm just excited to still be on this ride. It's a beautiful ride. Yeah, I've learned that over time. So um, over 
the course of living in Detroit, I've always loved school. I really did. My grandparents knew that. And I would, you know, walk to school every day and from like we lived near the projects, like no more than like a block from the projects. And I went to school in the projects and I would just come home and just study. And I just studied every night in front of like our heater. And my mom would be, you know, working late because she had, you know, more three miles to feed, including her own. And she did what she could. So my grandparents knew that. And um, they saw that I really had a passion. And growing up in Detroit during that time and still in Detroit, it's very turbulent and it's very scary. And I'll just give you some context to that. My best friend in fifth grade passed away in a drive-by shooting. So, um, you know, and that was, that was something that was of the norm. I remember seeing metal detectors going into my school earlier on. And so you're kind of already put in that kind of system. And my grandparents realized like an only way for me to actually make it was actually for me to not be there anymore. And I, I say to people, the first mountain I ever climbed wasn't one in an exotic location or in America. It's, it's 770 Asbury Park, Detroit. That was the first mountain I climbed getting off that block. Um, and it took a village, um, not, again, when you think of like a base camp of like people around you that those people were my base camp and they really helped me out. So, um, I had to make a hard decision as a, a child, um, come out of fifth grade to talk to my mom and my grandparents and they gave me the opportunity to leave. And, um, my grandparents said, Hey, you're going to come with us, live with us. And, um, uh, and it was a very tough thing to do. But that opportunity gave me the opportunity to become the first person in my family tree to ever go to college. And it, it changed the trajectory of what, you know, that, that, that path that would have happened if I never really made it out of that mountain, per se, I say. So that was my childhood. And it was to this day, I went back, um, for, went back to Detroit for the first time uh, last year. And it was for the first time in 20 years. And a lot of my friends that knew me from back then and my relatives didn't make it out, unfortunately, and fell into that one-sided path. And um, I say this, they always say like, you're a hero. And I go, why? And they go, cause you made it out. And um, I just keep climbing for them. I keep moving on for them and I keep doing that for them to see. You can't be something if you don't see it. So, yeah. That's a remarkable story. And it really highlights uh, the reality that exists for so many people in this country. I know a lot of us live in, in, in bubbles and we don't, we don't see that side too often. And uh, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing this with us. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, you did not though say when you moved out of Detroit, where did you end up? I ended up in Hawaii eventually. So my grandparents, we moved around a lot being in the military. We moved around a lot and I got to end up in um, 808. <laughs> and so it was interesting. I learned that was the first place I would say dog is the first place in my entire life that felt like home. Um, and I, I was telling my mom this recently, it's because you, where you start and where you feel like home are two different things. And, and we'll talk about this later with the Between Worlds project is you, myself, everyone, we're all lottery tickets. We don't really get to say where we end up when we come out, like or who our parents are, the situation. And I was very fortunate for my grandparents to be very, they're in the military and discipline and really fight for this country and be stationed in Hawaii. And so I got to really see nature at its, you know, essence for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And, um, I remember just putting my feet in the sand and like walking around barefoot and just like seeing the power of the ocean and just like seeing the power of like the mountains and diamond head. And I was just, I felt 
for the first time in my life, that was home. So when people ask what's home, I say to me in my heart, that's home. Um, where I began was Asbury Park in Detroit and uh, changed the entire scope of my life. I think, uh, you know, being now the water person that surfs and free dives and falls in love with the ocean, then also going meditate on top of mountains. That is where uh, I really got into nature for sure. Yeah, there are certain themes that just continue to reverberate throughout this pod. And one of those themes uh, that just keeps coming back again and again is just the healing power of nature and the transformative uh, power of nature. And this is just another great example of that. Yeah, it's, I would say, I remember just meditating and just being there on the Nepali coast. You have the Nepali coast on the big island, you know, climbing Mauna Kea, you know, seeing a dolphin for the first time, seeing crystal clear water. And that to me is, um, when I climb now or travel, I think I, I feel healed. Like today when I was on top of mountains meditating after my run, and it just feels like nature doesn't judge you for what your skin color is or isn't, your social status. It just lets you be. And when you feel that, you're able to take that feeling and go forth and know that you're in a place of like safety and security. And that's why I say when I climb, just we're not just climbing for social change, we're climbing to make sure we sustain this beautiful place that we have here. And um, it's healed me. And every time I go in the ocean, I always close my eyes and I say, hey, I'm with you and say a little nice little prayer, I guess, to call it, or say, say, bring home everyone safely that's in the water that I see. Give us back the life that you gave us here on earth. And same thing when I, um, I'm at a base camp. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, before we get up in the mountains and talk about those experiences, you did have uh, some other types of adventures and you continue to have those adventures, uh, yeah. like with big wave surfing. And yeah. uh, you're also a, a collegiate athlete as well. Yeah, I did. I did. So, my grand, like I said, my grandparents and I, we, we, you know, fought that hard battle to get, be the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, and I got offers to go to college at different places, and I became a D1 athlete. It was something that I ran track back in Detroit because we couldn't afford to do anything else. <laughs> so that's all I could do with my friends is just run up and down the block. And then I was like, I'm gonna use. I'm like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna become a D1 athlete when I go to the Olympics. I'm five four. That was never gonna happen. But you know, I really. <laughs> so, but you can't tell like a small Andrew King that back in the day. So yeah, I ran track and field um, for for 13 years. I, from yeah, eight years old to I was 21. And you know, being a D1 athlete and coming from a military household and being very disciplined, those things were distilled in me of what it takes to go from good to great. And I, you know, was very lucky enough to run at a University of Maine, had an amazing coach, one of my best friends till this day, we were just talking about like, we've been friends for what, 14 years, 15 years. And he were on the same team together. And we're going on an expedition together too. And um, that has been an amazing experience. So running track and being an athlete, you, that theme you'll hear over this side of that transition until climbing and surfing of like how to take care of your, your car or your vessel. You only get one car, which is your body. And so how to really maintain that and what does discipline really, incremental discipline compound to over time to you know, accomplish those goals. And to give you an example of that is in college, being really you know, five foot four and you really got to, and being a track athlete, dude, in 100 meters, what I did, 100, 100, 200, you, I, I broke into the 10 second realm. So running 100 meters, and I think a 10.8, it 
was really hard to do um, for some of my stature and all those little tinker twailing, um, you know, refining aspects or getting 1% better each day is what my coach instilled into me and which I now use when I climb or I surf and when I coach other people to surf for free. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's another, another good phrase. I like that incremental discipline. And uh, we talk about incremental progress a lot on a a through hiking podcast, as you might imagine. One of the amazing things about being out in the backcountry is you wake up in the morning and you start walking. And by the end of the day, you turn around and you see how far you've come. And it's just amazing what you can do by just doing, you know, step after step after step. And the same thing applies to what you're talking about with incremental discipline and, and making a little tweak here or there and staying at it and keep working and keep working and having breakthroughs. So that's just, that's awesome. Yeah. I was just, I was just out surfing with someone today. I met in a lineup recently and he was watching me surf. He's like, how did you get, you know, good at surfing? And I was like, I don't, think I'm good but I thank you for that and I said he's like can you teach me and I just gave him I said one percent better each day like you don't compete against anyone else you compete against yourself you know and in taking that time so working I said that to him it's like again one like work on those three things that you really want to tune each time you come out to the water and you're going to get better you know everyone focus like when I, I remember in track and field I was so focused on Oh, I'm going to run this 10, five, I'm going to six, you know, get so stiff. And I needed to bring it back to your point to working on the steps. How are you getting into the block? What are you eating? How are you feeling? And then when you look back after the race, how are you digesting, you know, that feedback from your coach and from yourself to be better in the next heat or so forth. And um, it just carried with me and I still use it every day. All right. Hey, our first impromptu top three list. Uh, top three surfing locations in Hawaii. <laughs> top three. Oh my gosh. That's a good one. Uh, Sunset Beach, for sure. Sunset Beach is the best. I would say Sunset Beach, Rocky Point, and then on Moana Bowls. I want to say Pipeline, but like, I'm never really going <laughs> to You know, everyone, you, you got the pros on pros there. So, but on Moana Bowls, to me will always be close to my heart because I remember getting my first surfboard and just like walking out there and just surfing right there. So those are my three top spots for me. Nice. Best time of the day to surf. Is it early in the morning or is it in the evening? Um, it depends. I would say depends. You know, you have the tides, you know, have the swell, but for me, uh, I, I love surfing at here in, in California. I love surfing at night because it's very, poetic as the sun goes down you can say like hey thank you for today and i maybe do that sometimes early in the morning it's great too but it depends so i'm more of a night person like again nothing more beautiful than watching that sunset dwell off and just like giving it your best shot going into the night yeah sunsets are magical i will agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. and i am i am no expert uh, i'm far from being an expert in surfing but uh, longboard or shortboard shortboard you know <laughs> i think for me shortboard is the way to go uh i mean but anything i'm pretty short so any board to me is pretty long <laughs> but uh yeah a, a shortboard is my style i i've tried to get into longboarding and i just i don't know why they didn't translate to as fun for me so i just love chasing the barrel i just really do and for some odd reason i just get really tiny in there so it's great <laughs> For, so for all of all our uh, landlubbers out there who are listening, um, what is the difference between shortboard and longboard? I mean, what, why, why would you pick one over the other? Are they more suited for different types of surfing? 
Uh, yeah, they are. So if you're high performance, you definitely are going to lean more towards a short board. If you're kind of like style and, you know, casual, you're more of a long board. I, I think when it comes to the long borders oh, in Hawaii, just watching, you know, Hawaiians surf with long boards, it's a, it's an art, it's poet, it's poetic. Um, and also in short boards, you just seeing how people carve down the line, you're able to hit the lip and really like cut into, you know, the wave and really dance with the wave as it moves down with its hand is something that's beautiful with a short board. So it's, it's more of a style and preference. Um, here in California and Malibu, you do have a lot of long borders and they really do prefer like it's more chill. You really, are you going to pick the wave? You're going to get the wave really quickly because you have your board's long and it has a lot of foam to it. Short board, you better know what you're doing as soon as it's coming to you. You're taking off. You're either doing some cool cars, you're going down the line, you're getting in the barrel. And um, it just depends on your style. And so for me, it's, I love being in the barrel with a wave. Uh, it's for me, it's like when it washes over you, it's like it's bringing something new to you every time. And so it's, it's just also really cool to be like, this is really crystal clear air. I hope I make it out. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. And that, that, that prompts me to ask you before we leave the, the surfing topic behind us, uh, can you share with us your, maybe your best moment on a surfboard and maybe your scariest moment on a surfboard? Oh, <laughs> I think those actually happened in the same time recently. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, there's a place called Puerto Escudino. It's basically called the Mexi, the Mexi Pipeline. It's down in Mexico and Oaxaca beautiful community beautiful place i studied that wave for a very long time it's a massive massive place this the waves this there so it's a sand it's a beach break so that means there's no reef there's no point break no rocks it's just it's collapsing right there it's really big so i've always wanted to get barreled there i've always looked at that wave over the years and just studied it i'm someone that really studies the ins and outs of things like mountains anything i'm going to do i just like break down the footage of it so i was just watching videos studying the time to go i went in november which is not the big season and so the big season like when it gets like 20 and above it's the summertime where you got like the pros going out there with a vest on and everything so i went in november um or, or october and um really got into i was like i saw it i was like wow i really wanted to take one of these and i got barreled i didn't have the right board for it the people thank you if the mexi pipeline crew and the are listening thank you for letting me lend you your board because i i came with a small board and i was like oh i can definitely take this you know six foot board you need like a seven or above board to surf that wave like a long good board so i my uh, met someone down there in the water who was nice enough to coach me into what that wave was like and I, I honestly got this amazing shot of me getting blanketed over with the barrel like it's coming over on top of me and everyone was like that looks like an ESPN photo and what it looks like in there it's like everyone's like all right why are you flexing like I'm holding on for dear life I'm it, it's doc it's about to shoot me out of a cannon I'm just like I'm not flexing I'm like holding on trying to slow it down that's not flexing that's clenching it's clenching yes it is clenching you can see me clenching and so uh i'm looking down the line and it is so beautiful it's crystal clear and i'm just like this is my birthday gift that i want it and i just come out screaming out of the water i'm like i got it i got it i got it <laughs> and i was so excited um and then let's talk about the scariest time which comes the next day <laughs> so, the next day 
you know, I'm, you're really, I'm amped, I'm feeling this. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And the next day is twice as big and it's a pretty big day. And I paddle out and I'm like, okay, cool. No vest or anything. I'm paddling out and I'm like, I'm going to make this wave and I'm about to be close to the lineup. And this big set comes in. It's I'm no more than 20 feet probably from the lineup to, to make it but I'm not paddling strong enough. And so I'm laying on my back. I'm like, sorry, laying on my stomach as any surfer, like paddling. And I look up and I'm looking at this monster of a wave about to crack on my face. I'm looking dead up at it. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it. I'm just like, I can't say what I said on this pod, on this pod, but <laughs> anyone else can probably just, I'll let you, you know, think of those words, but I'm just like sitting there going, I'm not going to make this. And it collapsed. I try to punch through the back of the wave and I think I'm going to make it. As soon as I punch through, I'm like, I'm safe. Another wave is on its way already. The second of the set and it collapses on me and just sucks me all the way down, punches me in the head. Like I just feel like someone punched me in the, like I got in a bar fight, punched me in the head and I just go straight to the bottom. And it's, it's pitch black down there and I I do my breath work and I do my free diving training to hold my breath I'm sitting at the bottom of this beach break and I'm sitting there doing my you know you you do certain techniques to calm yourself down so I I did vegetables and I'm like apple I was like that's not a vegetable like you know like I'm like going through like you know I'm like you know carrots and I'm like you know eggplant and I'm like when am I gonna be able to come up for air and I'm almost to like gee and I still am not coming up yet. And I start, you know, doing the, the swim up to the surf and it's, and it's pitch black still. And I come up and here's the funny part. My board shorts are ripped in half. I now have a bikini um, board shorts. <laughs> My GoPro is blown away from the board and I am sitting there just happy to be alive and I just get back and everyone's like, are you okay? And I'm just like coughing out water. And it, it showed me what I wanted to learn there, the good and bad of surfing where mother nature does not care. Again, doesn't care who you are, what you look like. I'm serving up. If you want to take this, you take it. And I really thought I could take it. And she showed me the true potential and the beauty of the wave. And I, at that point, I became even more obsessed with surfing because I was just like, this is the art. This is the beauty and the power of the elements of life. And it was, you know, learn what you need to learn. And I always say this, if you don't know the pieces of the game, you don't deserve to play. And I think on that day, what it taught me was you need a bigger board one, because you was riding a six ten. Two, you should have a vest on no matter what, um, because that can be very dangerous. And three, always respect you know mother ocean she's that's you know that's at the end of the day so those are my two those are my two moments that was really long but like those are definitely my two moments that's good stuff and it it just goes to show that uh ecstasy and disaster are not that far not not that far apart from each other not that far apart everyone (laughs) everyone was stoked on that photo and i was just just like if only you knew what came the next day you know like nature nature is no joke the ocean is no joke especially i mean the power of the ocean is just crazy and then besides the power you've got stuff swimming in there you know right yeah 
and it's it's amazing to, to watch those surfers like now you got like Kyleni, you got like you got kk you know she's surfing like those those surfers they put in the work to do it and i think that's where you look at surfers now that are surfing these big waves of nazare and such like that is no joke that is not and i'll be honest with you the video doesn't do it justice it is way 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 like imagine seeing your entire house pick itself up and come out chase you that is basically it yeah yeah you know, we, we were out there backpacking, you take pictures uh, with your, your iPhone or even people with, with, you know, decent cameras out there taking pictures. And I come back and I show my relatives, Hey, look at this. You, know, you can't, can't believe this. And the picture does no justice to it. Wow. And so I'm, I'm, I am sure the same applies to, you know, surfing videos. Uh, and we're watching those documentaries. You're right. It doesn't do it justice. It's, it's not, it doesn't seem as, as huge as it actually is. No. I, and I told the, my coach who was out there where I met, I said, I told him, I was like, I'm going to come here once a month every year and practice and master this wave. Not just because it destroyed me and I'm glad it humbled me because it should. I, I'm, I think when you should be humbled by the nature so you don't become too arrogant in that space. But just to show, just for, I, I, I love big wave surfing and I really do want to progress in it because honestly, doc, there, there's no people of color in it really. It's such a, it's the next level up where you like, you have to have a jet ski, you have to have partners, you have to have a shaper, you have to have huge sponsors. So again, it's like, and I'll give you an example of this, that, that day when I went and got that barrel photo, the earlier morning, I was practicing down the way and someone goes over to me and goes, oh, I didn't know black people can swim. And I said, you're right. They can also surf. You didn't know that. And I just take off on one of this, the biggest wave. Nice. And so that's what emulated or from that conversation, because I think, you know, I, when I, when I surf big waves, it's not because I'm like, Oh, I have this ego to prove. It's more of like pushing the limits and the boundaries of, you know, social and inequality. Like if I can make it here now, I know the next person behind me, you can't, you can't, again, you can't be something if you don't see it. And so if, if a kid that was born, if a guy that was born in Detroit, is now surfing these bigger waves. I wonder what will happen if, like, in my heart, if a kid sees himself that lives in California and be like, wow, I can go do better than that. And I'm like, yes, please go do better than that. You can go higher, bigger, faster, for sure. And I would love to see that. Paving the way. Paving yeah. the way. That's awesome. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, we're going to get into how Andrew got started with climbing and mountaineering. And we're going to talk about his uh, upcoming uh, or he's in the middle of it. It's not upcoming, but uh, his project. So uh, the 14 peaks. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, this is Andrew Alexander King. I'm the founder of the Between Worlds Project and currently on a journey to become the first African American to climb the highest mountain and volcano on each continent. You are listening to the John Freaking Muir Pod. And welcome back. We're talking to Andrew King, one of the new trail stars named by Outside Magazine. And we're going to get into uh, a little bit into how he got into climbing and mountaineering. How did that all come about, Andrew? Yeah, so I would say the way that it came about was I wanted to see, again, like I, like I said, the first mountain I ever climbed was 
Asbury Park in Detroit. So that's the first mental mountain I ever climbed. And mountain climbing to me is mental aspects of it. And I would say in my early 20s, I really wanted to explore new heights. I really wanted to push myself to be more than what society said I should be. And I needed to have some time to really explore wilderness in my aspect of what I wanted to be. I never really did that to a certain degree. Like, you know, in Hawaii, like, yeah, we're out in the ocean or, you know, climb on a cave, but I never really went and, you know, said like, hey, I'm going to go here by myself, do this, climb, be in nature and see how it feels. And, you know, the first mountain outside of that, you know, I don't have to think back to what that may be, but when I got to the top of it, it really just resonated with me. I was, it was silence. There was no, you know, anyone saying any racial issue or words or no, like, you know, social status. There was no argument. It was just pure silence at the top of that mountain. And I could just see on the horizon, you know, clear, so clear, like other mountain ranges, the forest. And I was just like sitting there thinking, that's your future out there. You, it's it's out there and I just remember sitting there looking and um, really feeling at peace and what I learned of that climb is I wasn't the same person as when I started I was totally different I was my mind was wider and my perspectives were deeper I understood things about myself because you have to come to terms with who you are as you climb like and I say this to people when I do climb I say the baggage that you take on your climb, if you don't release that while you're climbing, it's going to weigh you down. It's going to make it harder to get to the top mentally, physically. And so just, I came to terms with a lot of things racially and economically that were in from society that were affect, affecting me. And it, it took off from there, doc. It just went from, you know, I it started to have a behind me. Well, you can't see, but behind me, I have like, a, I had a map of places I wanted to go. And I was like, I wonder what it's go here. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to St. Lucia. And I'm going to climb the highest mountain in St. Lucia. And people like, why St. Lucia? I was like, it's an island. I like islands. <laughs> so I went there and went through the jungle. And um, Mount Jimmy was, was amazing. And it really just, again, meditated at the top and could see all the way out. And it took off to where I started to not fall in love with conquering the mountains, but connecting with the people along the way. Because the other aspect that I learned was people really were teaching me how to be a better climber, not just physically, but mentally of what I need to see. And so I would say it started from wanting to find myself and then being a place where I could hear myself and look out and define what I wanted my future to be. When mountaineering came into it is, is after uh, I started it's after when I, when I was done climbing islands around the world. So I did the highest mountain in the Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, and the Indian Ocean. Arctic Ocean, still up there. I'm planning on doing that too. Um, so Reunion um, Island, there is Mount Pico, I mean Pico de Negros and Reunion. And then Mount Titi in the Atlantic, Mauna Kea in the Pacific. And then Indonesia, I did Mauna Gung and a few others as well there. And Mount Fuji. I just really love climbing islands because I could get to the top, meditate, and if the sun was still up, go back and surf. So <laughs> you're kind of connecting between those two worlds where the ocean to the summit or sea to summits. And um, you're the perfect I, spokesperson for sea to summit. Now, <laughs> exactly. Right? And here's the thing like, we were like, 
I love this. This is my life. <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, I connected to that and mountaineering came in where I started. Uh, before you get, before you get too far into mountaineering, I want to unpack, unpack some of the stuff that, that sure. uh, you were talking about there because there's a lot of overlap and connection with yeah. through hiking. Sure. Um, number one is the, this whole concept as nature, as kind of an equalizer yeah. that when you're out there, I mean, you're, you're kind of on the same level as everybody else. Mm-hmm. When you're out on a, on a through hike after a week on the trail on a through hike, everybody's hiker trash. I mean, it is, it's, it's, you know, there, there's no, there's no uh, different social groups out there. You are, you, you are one in the same and, and the, the, the helpful and benevolent, uh, nature of people you find out in nature uh, is incredible as well. Everybody is is just out there for one another and uh, you know helping out strangers that they've they've never met before. So that's a that's a very nice parallel with uh, the hiking community as well. I think that is the truth, and I think that's what I find so beautiful with nature is because any mountain I go on now, like the other, like the other day, someone goes, do you have a bandaid in, uh, in your back? And I was like, Oh, I don't have a bandaid, but you know, can I cut you something for my shirt to help your blister? You know, cause you're all on the trail trying to reach that summit and, you know, define your your happiness at the top. And so who am I to, you know, stop you from feeling that same feeling that I felt a decade or so ago or more right. ago. So I think that's where the hiking community is really, now seeing that there should be more done where people should be able to access these trail and feel at peace because to your point it is a beautiful healing process that it's basically free if you can get there that's mm-hmm. the problem you just have to get there yeah and then another thing that really resonates is that you were alone in your head for a lot of a lot of the time on your on your hikes i'm sure that the same you know in mountaineering you're you're alone with with your thoughts and you have a lot of time to deal with uh, whatever issues you need to deal with. And that's the same thing on a, on a long hike. You know, you're you maybe hiking in a group, but the group kind of spreads out. And even if you are in a group and people are close in proximity, you know, most of the time we're not talking to each other. We're, we're thinking about stuff and it's really a great opportunity to, to work on things. Yeah. I, I think that is the key thing when you're asking what got me, it's like I had to figure things out where my life was going and having a space that wasn't in a city or crowded with what you should and shouldn't be. And it was in nature. And I lost that, I would say, until I went back into hiking and climbing, where I could do that, where I would say, you you kind of have, when you're young, you have that imagination and that novelty to what something is. But when you grow, when you become an adult, you, you become sadly warped to, or kind of a more of a realist because of what society, you know, gives to you. And you're like, you have to really digest that. And I remember just being on that hike and being like, I don't want to be that. Like, I don't want to be just Af- just an African-American that has to just be here today. Like, I want to be more than just here. And getting to the top of the mountain, I just really look back and go, I, 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 I remember crying. I really do because I remember looking out there and be like, this is your future. Grab it if you want it. Take it as you want it. And, and from then, I just kept, you know, self-taught. No one taught me how to... Um, surf. No one taught me how to climb. I had to teach myself. And as soon as I got a taste of that, I really, really just was like, I'm going to teach myself how to navigate, use a compass, how to get myself first aid, how to read a map, how to go through all that, how to look for like, you know, sip and water if you need to, like all of those aspects, how to start a fire if you're on the cold, like, and that to me was, again, back to being a human being in a place that was, you know, 
welcoming and natural. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you also mentioned meditation. And I know that you mentioned the mental exercise you went through while you were on the, uh, on, on the, the bottom of the ocean floor waiting for, for the wave to pass. Yeah. And uh, just another, another um, cool parallel is that endurance athletes, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not so much the physical challenge that does people in as, as it is the mental um, tenacity, the mental toughness of, of being able to participate in endurance athletics. I've talked to ultra, ultra runners, uh, you know, mountaineering, um, long trail hikers, and just that mental toughness and that grit and sticking to it and, uh, you know, not panicking is uh, such a, a, a useful skill to have. Yeah, it is. I think for me, for me, for sure, from free diving to climbing, just did the highest volcano in North America down in Mexico, 18,000 feet. And, you know, you have to have, again, it goes back to what I say, like, I'm so grateful to that a lottery ticket punched me out into Detroit because it taught me to have that mental grit early on. So now when I'm on a mountain, oh, you're telling them, all I have to do is keep walking? Cool. No one's going to shoot at me? Great. Cool. <laughs> I just got to keep walking up this mountain? Sweet. I'm doing with being cold? Okay, that's cool. I'll just bundle up. <laughs> okay, so that mental grit was instilled at an early age. And the meditation is when I, you know, got into my mid-20s and it refined at that type of the mind when I saw what I needed to see and felt what I needed to feel. And that is what keeps me alive on some of the biggest expeditions, climbing and surfing and in freediving. Because to your point, if you do panic, you're wasting more energy trying to grab onto something. Life is already there for you. You have to accept it for what it is. Learn from the lessons and let it guide you out versus trying to grab it and make it into something that it's not. And that's what it's taught me in meditation is be at peace with what you have. Learn from the lessons that it's giving you in this moment that's passing. So it's just when I say in surfing, like not every wave is for you. It's here to teach you a lesson. Let it pass and then take the one that comes for you next. And every mountain is the same way. Not every mountain you're going to get to the top. There's been mountains that I, I had to turn back and I'm no more than a hundred meters from the top. And I said, this is it. It's not that I'm fatigued. It's more that mentally is my ego worth my life and the life of the people that I'm on this mountain with? And the answer is no. But if I didn't really meditate to know myself and to know what life is presenting to me, I would blow past this moment. And the lesson learned will be very a, a pretty deep consequence that I may not be able to live with. I know I would not be able to live with. Mm -hmm. And so endurance athletes, I understand that I completely like your mind has to be in the, it has to be fine tuned. And I tell people when I go on an expedition or I'm getting ready to fly to climb, I'm locking and loading my mind for that climb. Like I'm making sure that if I'm there with other team members, they're coming home to their significant others and their families there's the, the ego should be like that that mountain has withstand all of our family generationally <laughs> so it's gonna keep being there you are once in a you are one in a lifetime so learning that and um keeping that aspect of like how to make yourself happy and i for me it's when i'm on a mountain recently um i remember i didn't get a lot of sleep that night we were just again doing the highest volcano in north america and i didn't get a lot of sleep that night i got maybe an hour and a half of sleep uh, you know, and it wasn't, it, I remember everyone was partying outside the tent and I was like, I just want to sleep. And I woke up, I've been training for this mountain for six months and 
I look at, you know, the guy I'm with and we're looking at each other. He goes, how do you feel? I'm like, I'm dead tired. I'm dead tired. And we have to go up and again, any volcano has a very shelf volcano has a pretty steep incline. And I'm sitting there being like, I am super just, I just want to sleep right now. And I go inside my mind and we take a break and I go, you can sleep when you get back, Andrew. And that's probably another 12 hours from now. And I just have peace. I make a fireplace in my head. I make a fireplace inside of my, uh, my mind. And I put my mind at peace, put some Nina Simone on it inside my head, listen to that fireplace. And I just keep going up and I just start smiling. So you have to really, again, really see the situation for what it is, come to peace with it and let the lesson learn, like learn the lesson trying to give you, which is in that moment was, Andrew, you're not tired. You just prefer sleep, but you trained. And so do what you came to do. I like that. I'm, that's what I'm going to tell myself next time. Doc, you're not tired. You're just not, not used to getting, getting this little sleep. Yeah, very good. Very good. All right. So how did you get into mountaineering? Was there a, uh, did you pick up the phone and you, you called uh, mountaineering RS and uh, sign up for some classes or how, how does that work? So for me, I actually studied, uh, I studied, again, I'm a big advocate of studying, 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 studying. And again, I didn't, the mentors that I have in mountaineering are those of the past. Uh, and I just really looked at how they got into it. And so for me, I study about two hours a day on mountaineering. I have books actually I'm looking at right now. Um, and I just really study the ins and outs. I have rope. I, you know, practice my knots. Really, when I wanted to go out, I would find my own mountain. So here in California, we have Mount Baldy and Mount Whitney. And I would just, again, do the triangle method, I call it. Three things I wanted to work on. So working on your crampon steps. Like, how are you, like, are you doing the French approach or not? No one really... I asked people, but unfortunately, there was never really a lot of like mentors there in that space. And so I had to really take it upon myself and teach myself of what that would be like. And so I just stuck with it, Doc. I really just said, hey, if you want to learn what mountaineering is, these are, these are the things you need to know. Proper crampon, actually how to actually use your cramp, uh, proper crampons, proper ice axe. Um, how your weight is in your bag, elevation, where you're going to feel at elevation, how, you're, how to tell if you're getting heat, I mean, hemp or not. So those are, those are different things that I, over the years, just would study like no other. And I still study to the day because it, it's a sport that's always, you're learning every mountain's different. And when I'm on an expedition with someone that's better than me at it, I'm always opening to learning what they know. So I would say in a short term, the way that I actually got into it or learned it was doing it and then learning from those when I went on expeditions and I'm like, hey, I want to learn from you. Get a guide. Talk to your guy. Like, again, if you really want to get into mountaineering, I would say find a, find a mountain that has snow on it, alpine, and get a guy that can really teach you the fundamental basics that you're going to need to know. And that will, if you're really into it, really study from your, you know, the past, Sir Hillary's, the, the Sophia's, the Danes, like those people that have actually climbed and study how they got into it. And it all comes down to, in my opinion, just consistency and passion. And that's what I just used. 
Now, the, your description there of the triangle and just working on three things and focusing on that, and it, it goes back to that incremental improvement. Uh, it really, it really makes me think that your grandparents and their military background had a huge impact on who you are today, because that is that is military discipline right there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. My grandfather, who I love, yeah, my grandparents. I still make my bed every day, and then I have <laughs> yeah, but they definitely did. I think it's helped. It's definitely because. What my grandparents taught me was something that was super key is that no one's, it's not anyone's responsibility to teach you things that you really want to know and passionate about. You're going to have to try things for the first time yourself and you're going to fail a lot. I have failed a lot <laughs> and that is great. When I fail at something, I write it down in my notebook. I study it on myself and go like, how'd you fail here? And I try it again and I try it again and I break it down to that fundamental level and that's something my grandparents really, really instilled in me is you're going to, you're going to face challenges. And I think being an African, I know being an African American, you, the odds are already against you. And so if you're looking for a handout, you're not going to get that. You need to take your hands and build what you want to build. And that's what they told me. And then that's what I did. Nice. Now, I, I think I read, I'm not sure if it was gear junkie or if it was the outside um, magazine article but I read about uh, you, you've had 50 summits. Yeah. So we had 50 summits. And actually there's more. 55, not 15, 50, 50 yeah. summits. Yeah. Over that because I actually was doing, I was counting the other day. And everyone was like, everyone was like, how many is this now? Like I was just, when I was down in Aconcagua, we climbed. And if you do the Aconcagua expedition with AMG, they're amazing, by the way. I love you guys bound down there. Hope you're all safe. Um, amazing team. We climbed another mountain to like obviously acclimate for Aconcagua. And everyone goes, Andrew, what number is this? And I go, hi, I was like 54. <laughs> and I was just like, and that was a while ago. So now I think, yeah, I think <laughs> well, probably in 59, 60 at this point. <laughs> so it's definitely, it's been an amazing time doing it. And I, again, the way I did it, I used to do about five to six mountains a year. So globally, um, being then internet, like domestically, and uh, I would just travel to those places and climb, you know. So the tra it's the Trinity climb in Southeast Asia from Mount Kinabalu to Mount Jay to Mount Fuji, um, Indonesia, you have, you have Mount Agung, you have Lombok, you have so many different mountains there. And then you have the Andes down there, and then you have Bolivia, central, the highest mountain in Central America, which is in Guatemala, Mount Pico, which is in the Azores. <laughs> so it just goes on. And, um, but yeah, I, I, my mom said this other day, she goes, you should keep a running list. And I go, you're right. And she's like, can't you tell by your passport? Because I'm always getting a new passport. And before, obviously before the pandemic, and um it's it's always been something I'm just grateful for. And it's, again, that first mountain I climbed back in Detroit was the springboard. And I, I honestly just, and to be honest with you, Doc, there's been mountains where, oh, like the small, you'd be surprised. The smallest mountain was the hardest one. The Mount Pico in the Azores is one I didn't, couldn't summit because the person I was with, uh, it was my girlfriend at the time, she, her and I were climbing and the conditions went, it's, Again, it's in that trade wind area of the North Atlantic, and it's right, again, it's, it's a beautiful, the Azores are beautiful, but um, 
I looked at her and she looked at me and she goes, I'm too afraid to climb. And I looked down at her and I said, okay, it's okay. And she was like, you climbed over 30 mountains in a row, always summiting. And that was like the first one I couldn't do. And that's back to my point where it's like, what's the lesson life is trying to teach me right here? Not everything is about conquering. It's about connecting. And someone that I said that, like that moment in life made me really believe that and stick to that because I wasn't going to sacrifice someone I truly care about to just summit. And she's like, go on without me. And I was like, we're doing this together. We've climbed mountains in Indonesia together. And there you so. But yeah, over 50. Sorry, we got a lot. <laughs> <laughs> is there an Andrew King website? There is the Between Worlds Project website. <laughs> okay, well, I think there should be a little offshoot on the Between Worlds uh, website. It should be Andrew King's <laughs> Summits. And you have a list, a chrono- chronological list of your summits, uh, starting with that first, that first summit in Detroit. I think that would be great. Here's the thing. I didn't even know there was a thing called peakbagging.com. I didn't even know what that was until recently. And like people were like, are you peakbagging? I was like, what is that? I just go to the top and meditate. <laughs> you are a peak bagger, my friend. I didn't know what that was. I was like, what is peakbagging? <laughs> All right, Kate, can you, can you uh, distill down to three, your top three peaks yeah, so far? I would say top three for me would be Kilimanjaro, 100%. And I'll tell you why. Kilimanjaro, climbing that, I get, I'll tell you the story, Doc, of the Kilimanjaro climb. <laughs> so the Kilimanjaro one is a big one for me because uh, I'm with a, I, that trip was hard. So I came in, let me take a step back. Kilimanjaro was the end of me doing four different mountains around the world in 12 weeks. So I made a goal for myself to do 12 mountains, I mean, sorry, four mountains within 12 weeks around the world in different places from Morocco to Hawaii, Mount Whitney and to Kilimanjaro, all the prep for Kilimanjaro because Kilimanjaro was at the end in December. And so um, I am trying to fly into, you know, Bushy, you know, where Kilimanjaro, the the airport is, and I get stopped in Dubai and my flight is changed completely. I had it down, logistically down to the, I was like, down to everything. I was like, at least I have two days, get there and acclimate. I'll be fine. No, I actually, I actually got, we, we hit an error or issue in Dubai and I had to get a new flight and everything. I flew in to start my Kilimanjaro trek the day of, not the day of, the three hours before. So I landed, no acclimatizing, dropped my stuff off um, that I'm not climbing with at like you know the hotel and then they just drove me right to the gate and everyone was just ready to rock and roll so we get ready to rock and roll and um and i we just start going i'm just like i'm just gonna do it i just start going i'm like here you go mental again that's where your mental aspect is very key and i just start walking up and i'm going with everyone along the way uh members of our team get sick and members of our team get altitude sickness Uh, oddly enough i didn't and so um, we get to, I think, the last gate before the summit, and everyone in the team, um, besides myself and one other guy, gets altitude sickness. And so I look at them, and I go, I'm going to run for it. And they go, what? And they go, like, no, I'm going to really run for the summit, because if I stand up here any longer, I'm going to have to vomit, and we know how this goes. So the guy, 
is with me and I just start booking it through like the ice and everything. I'm just like going, I'm just like going, like, he's like, slow down. I'm like, Nope, gotta make it. <laughs> so I just start going towards the top. I get to the top, take the photo and then meditate. You're like, just, I meditate, see Kenya. I can see everything out there and it's beautiful. Come up and we start going back and I go like, it's coming. And I just, yep, everything comes up and I'm like, there we go. That's what I knew was going to happen. Um, hang, hang on a second, Andrew. You just kind of glossed over that. <laughs> I, I've been on top. I've been on top of Whitney, and that's at fourteen thousand five hundred feet, right? And the last half mile getting to the top of Whitney was like walk a hundred feet and and stop for five minutes, right? Catch your breath. Yeah. So you're you're at uh, more than eighteen thousand feet on yeah. Kilimanjaro, and you're sprinting up to the top. I am, it's basically like a light jog at this point. You can see everyone I like. Everyone. Uh, you know what, light jog in that, at that altitude, that, that's a sprint. And I, <laughs> I have to imagine the reaction of the, uh, I don't know, the regulars, the, the people who, who, who live there, the guides. I mean, yeah. how did they respond to you running to the top of Kilimanjaro? It was interesting because this is what happened. So it wasn't just them. It's also the other teams are just looking at me oddly. They're just like, this guy's sprinting past. <laughs> They're like, this guy is just sprinting. I was like, no packs, just go, we're going. <laughs> so um, so when I come off the mountain back to base, this is where, this is like, it, this is why this mountain means a lot to me. All of the guides from around, from each different tour company start clapping and dancing and like celebrating. And I'm like, why aren't you guys doing this for other people? Like what's going on? And my guide comes up to me and he says, you did something that most of us never see you did something that really showed the power of what we've always said like you're someone that's black but you have so much you know happiness and love in you and determination that was just beautiful to witness and everyone was just dancing around I was like what is going on and and that to me was it will always be in my heart and to this day because I didn't plan on doing that I just didn't want to you know gas out or tap out right there knowing I could do that and but it showed to them that the heart and dedication and someone's like you're lying they're like you're lying i was like oh okay cool mufasa great um but that it was what the locals really loved about it so that's that will always be um a place in my heart and i look forward to the day that i can go back and i was actually thinking about this i would love to go back and be a sherpa with them and like carry things up and just be with them in that community for and train with them so hopefully one day that comes into fruition but amazing experience so that's my number one what a story number two <laughs> number two um thank you like number two would be for me would be mount jade in taiwan because it changed my life drastically there that's how the between worlds project came into what it is now which we'll talk a little bit more about um that climb on the way to climb you know three the trinity the trinity summits if you look it up it's like mount fuji mount jade mount you know kinabalu in malaysia that climb for me gave showed me what privilege looks like being an american and everyone else is outside of that developed um, ecosystem um i i went to a little shop there to get hot, hot chalk in a little coal town, coal mining town on my way up and um, traveling by myself and had a conversation with a woman that really sparked me to think heavily about where I am in this world, the glass ceiling we're all fighting to get through. And 
mountain jade wasn't a big mountain it's just the mental aspect that it widened up my perspective of what climbing is to me it's it's not about conquering it's about connecting and that was where again it solidified if you're going to do something do it with heart and passion and give back to other people and then number three number three would be oh that's a tough man these are tough ones (laughs) number three would be uh Aconcagua. And I say Aconcagua because Aconcagua really beat the crap out of me. For all you listening on this pod, please do not change your diet to be anything else like two weeks or three weeks before a climb. Don't do it to yourself. Don't, don't do it. You know, I went vegan for three weeks out for that climb. Do not, do not, do not, do not do that to yourself. <laughs> 20,000 people will not treat you great. But um, no I, drastic changes before major <laughs> endurance events in your life go and do that. I was like, oh, you know, let me try this out. Yeah, I'll do this challenge. Um, don't do that to yourself. Definitely um, noob right there. So um, that climb for me was the longest. That was probably, yeah, that was the first longest one. That was like over a month of climbing or trekking, I would say. And I met people on that trip where you know, I actually, that's a trip where I dealt with racism on that, on that trip. I dealt with heavy racism within our team and expedition team. Cause I didn't, when you sign up for climbs, you don't really get to see or pick who's in your team. Um, but I dealt, I did deal with some racism and it wasn't really, it was, it was uncomfortable, but I, I was mature enough at that point to handle it. It wasn't even, it wasn't just uncomfortable for me. It was, it was uncomfortable for other people in my, um, expedition team to deal with it and hear it because they came uncomfortable and, those individuals, though I tried to educate them on what it's not appropriate to say those things, they really tried to say it and thought it was cool, but it wasn't. Um, I think now, I, I can't speak from where, where they think now based off how things are now in the world escalated, but that was a really interesting one. I met a friend there, um, they're from the UK, and I made a promise to her that I'll get her son to the top because she had to turn back because she couldn't do the climb anymore. And that, again, is what I mean by connecting with everyone. Like, she, she just couldn't do it. She got to the point where she's like, I can't climb anymore. I'm tired. It's, and it's been like 15, 16 days. And we got another four or five days to go. Um, so I, her son was on the trip with her. And he's a great, you know, great kid, great, amazing person. Hey, Morgan, if you're out there listening to this, you're amazing. You know that already, though. <laughs> um, and... I told her before she left camp, high camp, I said, I'm going to make sure your son gets to the top. And he did. And Aconcagua, for me, like I was actually the last person to get up on that trip because I was pretty spent, like um, malnutritioned and such. And I sat up there and meditated with one of the best guys, Sebastian. So that trip was basically everything that I learned over a course of 10 years of what to be and what climbing and mountaineering meant to me was connect with people, be more than just here, give more than you take. And remember this mountain will beat the crap out of you and mother nature will hold no fury back. So come prepared. And um, honestly, doc, like for those 10 years, I honestly was climbing in gear that was pretty bad. So those are my three. They, they're all taught me beautiful things about what I distill in myself now in climbing. So. And did you say where Aconcagua was located? That is in Argentina. That is Argentina. Okay. All right. That is in Argentina. So that's one of the seven summits. So it's down Argentina, which is a beautiful, 
one of the most beautiful places. Like I, I remember leaving the park on the last day because you have to hike in and out. There is, there is no other way to get there besides a helicopter to base camp, besides a helicopter or you hike in or out. And that's a pretty long hike to get there. So yeah. I remember just posting it on Instagram and everyone watching the stories daily of me just walking through deserts and you're seeing a glacier. We see like an avalanche like up above, like where we're staying. But yeah, it was amazing. So. All right. Speaking of the summits, seven summits, we're going to get to uh, your, your upcoming goal to conquer the seven highest summits on each continent, as well as the seven volcanic summits. And we're also going to talk about the Between Worlds project. But we're, before we get to that, though, we're going to take a quick break. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey y'all, it's Brittany Woodrum and I just completed climbing all 58 of Colorado's 14ers and you're listening to the John Frickin' Muir Pod. Thanks so much for listening. And welcome back. Andrew, let's spend a little time talking about uh, what you were recognized for uh, in Outside Magazine and that is this challenge that you're undertaking to climb these 14 different summits and as I was thinking about that uh, in preparing for this pod I thought to myself hey one of these summits is Everest Andrew Andrew is going to be climbing Mount Everest yeah and that is that's mind-blowing just in, in just because of the scale of Mount Everest I mean that is a huge huge undertaking yeah and so so I'll say this um it dawned on me that you know, let's, let's talk about back to we started this podcast with is what I got recognized for in that speech and saying, I want to be something beyond social media, have something that's tangible and actionable. And so for me, I knew, I, I know that what would I, what is something that I am capable of, you know, presenting to the world that others can see, take and elevate um, beyond that action and it was climbing and being in the outdoors and so looking at what I'm able to do is take being an African-American mountaineer that's self-taught and go after the seven highest mountain on each continent and the seven highest volcanoes as well and so that to me was something that I put on myself to say this is my promise to not only the uh, African-American or people of color community or those that are marginalized community, it's my promise to make sure that I'm gone beyond what we just saw over the summer to make sure that there's something that this is actionable. And I think that's where a lot of the times when we have these big shifts and within society, especially on social media and everyone gets involved is it's gone the next quarter. And I didn't want that to happen. I'm saying, this is going to be a journey. This is going to be a long journey. Um, I have, you know, I have sponsors now that are great. They have given me gear, but financially, um, I've been paying it myself. Working two jobs, did Postmates on top of doing my corporate job as well. You know, and people go like, "Why would you do that? Like, you have a great job." I'm like, "I'm financial literate. I have two degrees. I work for a really great company, but at the same time, this is not a cheap sport at all. This is not something you just." can you know not have the gear and the money for it's very expensive and if it's not paid up you will definitely feel those consequences so climbing these mountains i've done kilimanjaro i've done aconcagua i just did pico de azua 
I always butcher that name. I'm so sorry if anyone here is from Mexico. I'm really sorry. Um, but that's the highest mountain in North America and then highest, um, highest volcano in North America. And then the highest volcano in Africa is Kilimanjaro and the highest mountain. But that's, this challenge isn't just about Andrew King climbing and conquering. It's about connecting and talking about each region has issues of sexism, racism, climate change, economical barriers. And um, just to tell you about the economical barriers, though I did this for years, I climbed Aconcagua in, in, in Amazon parka and some Walmart pants and some boots, you know, I had to rent other boots. And that's always been up until no, to be honest, up until July where Black Diamond and Hoka and Cedar Summit got involved, I was in pretty, I had to start a GoFundMe page. And then when I had really got gear, I was sitting there being like, I don't have to do Postmates anymore for a year. I don't, I was like, that was the first time. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I now know what a, a real parka feels like. I now know what it feels like to have really good mountaineering boots that are really good. Like I was doubling up my socks rock and cobwa, you know, and I think now I don't have to do that. And the, just give people a, a sense of what that feels like. When I went to Mexico to climb on that volcano, it was a breeze because training is something I'll do naturally. The discipline of it will be natural. You know, working on like my rope management, my crampon management, my, you know, crevasse, you know, rescue, like manager, like those are things I'm doing naturally and not having the gear that that's something I didn't have to focus on anymore. So um, this challenge is showing all of that, what it is like for someone that is traditionally not represented in this sport, the hurdles they have to overcome and how they do it. So I look forward to getting up Everest and just being at the base camp. I've been studying that mountain for a very long time. I watched every YouTube video that's on it. I've probably seen it, even the Amazon episodes. I've studied it. I can tell you what it's like flying into Kathmandu looking at it. And I look forward to just giving it a shot, not just to be a part of the record books, but to be beyond that and to give more people concepts like no African-American has ever done all 14. And that to me is interesting enough and i'm like well five thousand people or more have climbed everest but there's only been like maybe two or f maybe f 10 that are african-american or even like for someone of color that are not like don't include if you're not including like the locals that are from you know nepal so that's that's mind-blowing and then when you think of like the seven summits the list is even smaller and i'm just like why is that and so I, I want to challenge that on the climb. And so it's not about me getting to the top. It's more about us continuing the conversation. So, Yeah. Is there, speaking of that, is there any record of uh, how many people have actually done these 14 summits? I don't, I think there might be, I looked it up. I tried to look it up, but it's not a lot. I think it's like 500 or so. Not probably, it's probably less. I don't know. It's, I looked it up. And I don't think it's that many people, but yeah. That's a, that's a pretty select group. It is. It's because you're looking at, because each of those volcanoes are pretty rigorous. And there's two types of, it's just like everyone since there's, there's two, like the seven summits, there's two, there's mountaineering seven summits and then there's the other list for seven summits. And what I mean by the other is you can do the highest mountain in Australia, which will count as being the highest mountain in the Asia Pacific region 
but there is actually Pujak, which is in Indonesia or Papua New Guinea, which is considered the mountaineering seven summits. And that's what I'm going after is that like, I'll do the one in Australia. Love you, Australia. Great waves. Love everything there. You know, love you guys. See you in the Olympics. But um, it's more of the doing the mountaineering side, like pushing that limit. Um, and so that is what I'll be looking to. But yeah, I don't, if you look it up, I, I think it's probably a really small selective list because you have to have a lot of funding to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, I mean, you talk about this not being a short-term goal. This is going to take a while because yeah. it's not just, okay, it's not just climbing 14, right? There's, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. You climbed three out of 14 so far, mm-hmm. but in preparation for these, for these peaks, for these expeditions, it's not, it's not a day hike. These are expeditions. And so in training for these, I mean, what, what does that entail? Oh, that's a good question. And uh, for me, I have, I'll go through my training regime. Like today was a three-peat day for me or a push day, I call it. It's where uh, I wake up early and I go and do a no less than a thousand feet um, sprint, elevation sprint of mountain. And then I hit the water doing breath work and then I hit the gym as well. So those are, that's, that's a three, that's a a three-day workout. Um, then I do a big push day, which is going up Mount Baldy, doing that early in the morning, five, four or five in the morning, starting, um, going through, scaling up Mount Baldy, getting back before my meetings at nine o'clock. So training is not just you wake up, you roll out of bed, you're going to go climb. I've seen people do that on some of these documentaries. You all have a lot of heart. Love it. But um, for training, you, you have to have training mountains. Again, Mount Whitney is my training gear checking mountain when it comes to the winter season. And Mount Baldy is my close to home checking gear checking mountain for just making sure endurance. So every mountain that is on that list of the 14, there's going to be a list of other ones that I'll be doing as well to make sure that I'm physically fit and ready to handle them. Uh, I'll, I'll just say this, I'll jump into that. The snow leopard challenge is what I'll be using to re- get ready for Everest if you're a mountaineer listening to this, you probably know what the Snow Leopard Challenge is. It's the highest mountains in the former USSSR. And it's a challenge that takes you through seven, they're all 7,000 meter mountains. And they're in some Kazakhstan, some really deep remote parts of the US, former USSSR. And so those mountains to me are the ones I would preferably train on if I ever do get funding um, for these climbs to prepare me for Everest. Because though Everest looks like a walk in the park to some people, you're just going up. There are things that you don't see that are behind the scenes. Like there's crevasses, there's, there's, there's avalanches. Oh my gosh. There's, there's so many different aspects of that mountain that you need to train for. Denali is actually um, hopefully I'll do it this year if I get funding, is the hardest of the seven on top of then Benson because it's isolated. You come in with your gear, you're, you're pulling on a sled and you're setting up your base camp. Everest has a base camp for you, Wi-Fi and everything ready to go for you. Denali, you're dropped off on a plane. They say, we'll see you in three weeks. If anything else, give us a call. That to me, and it's very intense. So I am training on other mountains, gearing myself up for that. I, I don't want it to be a, a straight up the mountain. I want to connect with people within those regions, feel and understand what these mountains mean to them, take take their stories with me up the mountain and do it justice. So, yeah. 
Nice. So w- which, which mountain is next on the list the, you know, the, of the 14? Is it Denali? Yeah, it's Denali. We're trying to get funding now and it's, it's tough. And I was sitting there like, you may, be, you may see me up being a Postmates guy. If I don't get any funding, just letting you know, because it's, it's a lot and Denali is the next one. The reason why Denali is the next one, to be very candid, is if COVID didn't happen or the pandemic didn't happen, I would have gone and done Elbrus, Matterhorn, Edgar, and um, yeah, and those would have been it. And um, definitely train there in Europe. But unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it, it makes more sense to stay closer to home and try those and get ready for Denali. And so I wanted to do Rainier, Grand Teton, and Hood to get ready for Denali. But if we're not allowed to, if we don't find funding, then I'm just going to give Denali a go and it'll just be, here we go. All in, let's put all the cards in and see if we get it. And so, yeah. Hey, can I get a commitment out of you to come back on the pod after you've done Denali? I'd love to talk to you about it. Doc, you can get me to come back on after every one of these mountains, my friend. Fantastic. hundred percent. Like that is on record. It's on record. It's on recorded. It's so anytime I'm done with these, I would love to talk to people about my experience and get beta to what it's like and, help anyone i hope it really if you're any like your gender race you know i hope you find what you know i'm finding or even more on these climbs so i'm happy to do that no matter what so count me in all right fantastic thank you so we wish you the best of luck on on your endeavors the, the 14 peaks let's talk a little bit now about the between worlds project tell us what that's all about yeah, so that goes back to when you asked me the question about the climbs. Um, the Between Worlds Project is a project that I decided to create uh, yeah, five years ago, a little bit over that. Um, it's basically, if you think about it, you, myself, Doc, everyone that you come in contact with, we're all lottery tickets. No one has ever asked where they want to be born, what they want to look like, you know, what gender you want, what race you want. You're just basically a lottery ticket and you're presented out to the world you know, and that's what you have to deal with. And so we're all between this world where we stand and then a glass ceiling that's above of where we want to be. And so we're navigating between those worlds. As for me being an African-American, I'm navigating what it means to be in a country that really doesn't understand um, yet what it looks like for me to have rights that are equal and where it doesn't have to be a struggle um, or a very big conversation or escalation of, you know, violence sometimes. And so that came about from that conversation I had in Taiwan where you have this young Andrew King that's like, I'm going around, I'm climbing these mountains, having some fun, (laughs) you know, and uh, I sit back and I'm like, yeah, Taiwan, great place, love the street food. And I get to this little town on my way to, you know, the base of Mount Jade and I'm like, can I get some hot chocolate? And I talk to this woman in her, you know, little coffee shop. And she's like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm from America. She goes, oh, I love America. And I was like, you should come sometime, like definitely. And as soon as that leaves my mouth, I didn't mean to sound ignorant about it. It's, it would cost her everything to do that, just to get a ticket and let alone have the experience that I have daily to experience America to some degree. Um, and I noticed, I was like, she's between that world too, of where she wants where she is and where she wants to be and so now every place I go I work with a nonprofit within that 
place, um, within that country or community. If it's surfing expedition, if it's climbing, if it's diving, no matter what, give more than you take from away. Um, we have, and it has four core values is always give back to those that have less or like lacking resources. Always have a pl- always give those that have no, that have their voice silenced a place to speak. Uh, like I said, make sure you're not take you're taking less than what you um, can give and always just being a good person in that space. And I decided to, every time I go now, is to film nonprofits on their issues that they're dealing with. So in Kilimanjaro, um, you know, I was lucky enough to go down the street from where the gates are, where you start in Mushi, and there is an orphanage for street children. And those street children are not that far from one of the most commercialized mountains in the world, where you can... $3,000 to them is like, they just won the lottery. And if you have that much money, $200 to $100 goes a long way for them. And I would just sit there and learned about how some of their students were HIV positive to some of them were addicted on glue. Some of them were like alcohol and like deal with alcoholism already. And I'm sitting there going like, this is as a child, you shouldn't have to deal with those things let alone when you're right down the street. And so there's more that needs to be done. And, like, and I'm like sitting here, why do not people know more about this? And it's like, it takes me back to the woman that, it had, that I have had hot chocolate with. It's like, we're all between these worlds. We're trying to navigate the best way, but let's help each other break through that glass ceiling together. And the same thing in Morocco, when I climb out to Baku up in um, Morocco, is I went over there and volunteered at a woman's refuge. And I was a gardener for the day. I just like, Hey, can I come? I'm on my way to climb this mountain in Northern Africa. Can I please just come and learn about what it means to have, you know, limited rights within your community. And back in America, we're dealing with the Me Too movement right now. So can we really get a sense of like, what's that like for you being in a Muslim culture where you're not able to do certain things that we are over here. And um, I, I got a sense of what that like in, it was beautiful to not only be a gardener for a day to learn how to garden properly, but also to learn what it's like to be in a community where they didn't judge each other on the have and have nots. They took in women that were disowned by their significant others or had, um, you know, had to certain disabilities and they made them feel loved. They didn't really judge them on what they did and didn't have. It was a place of happiness. And um, the Between Worlds Project stands on those grounds where any place you go to, you give back. If you're climbing, you're not, you're only connect, you're connecting before you conquer. And um, that's the Between Worlds Project. So been doing it by myself for years, just my iPhone, my drone and a GoPro and just sitting down like Doc, you're doing here. It's like, let's have a talk. Let's talk about where you started and where you got to. And those stories are what I carry with me now up each mountain. And that's why climbing those 14 mountains is it's not about just climbing. It's about taking those stories and standing on top of a mountain and saying, this is the people that all helped me get here. Give back to them as well. So yeah, that's, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Where can our listeners learn more about the Between, Between Worlds project? So I finally got a website up. It took me a while to get that, but I have a website. So betweenworlds.com. So you can check out those three stories I just talked about, as well as the one in down in Ecuador when we did Cotopaxi and climbing that mountain or volcano as well and learning about how a beautiful, loving community, uh, Mocopicino, 
is trying to save their rainforest, which that rainforest provides fresh water to their neighboring sisters and brothers and their other countries. So deforestation and the corruption within their um, current communities hinders them from doing that. So again, just you can go there and check it out. We will be doing, well, I will be, hopefully I'll get some help. Maybe I'll get some help with someone. Um, if you want to enter and let me know. Uh, <laughs> so if uh, you can go check it out there and read the stories and hopefully in 2021, there'll be some really cool stories coming up um, heading to the Dominican Republic and to Colombia. So. Very good. Very good. Andrew, you know where we are right now? No, it's eight o'clock. <laughs> we are at that time of the episode where I turn to you and say, Andrew, what is your pro tip insight of the week? What little tidbit, what piece of advice could you share with our listeners to make their next adventure that much more epic? Oh, yeah. My pro tip of the week would be to meditate and understand your, your intentions before you take off into that adventure. Make a list of, I love the three, I want to say the three things again, but three things that you really want to achieve from your experience in that next adventure not conquer achieve internally uh if it's give like pick up three things of waste give back to this person high five this person um but i don't know if you can high five but you gotta stay six feet for a while but really just those set your expectations of what you want that uh, journey to fulfill or achieve for you that is my pro tip because when you do that you go into that adventure, not only with, sounds kind of like contradicting, but you go into with an understanding of what you look to get out of it. And when you come back, you should, you'll be a different person after you achieve those three things. So. Very nice. Thank you. So there you have it. That's it. Season two, episode two is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Andrew and I want to thank him for joining us this week. Andrew, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Um, please add me or, you know, talk to me on Instagram, Andrew Alexander King. And I'm going to be getting back into Twitter at Andrew Alexander King as well. I'll probably just be tweeting a lot of poems that I write in nature on Twitter. <laughs> so oh, there's, there's poems too, huh? I write poems daily. Oh, I need to have some of those. Yeah, I'll write some poems. So for sure you'll see that on my Twitter. But for anything else that's related to the expeditions or the surfing, please, um, if you have any questions, I, I love hearing from people that want to learn more or ask more. So Angie Alexander King on Instagram and Twitter, Angie Alexander King and Between Worlds Project to learn more. Great. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakinmuir at gmail.com. Andrew, I'm also looking to give our listeners your recommendation for a book, a movie, a documentary, a website, or a YouTube channel that will keep them connected to outdoor adventures. This is our adventure media re uh, recommendation. Oh yeah, I have a good one. It's mountains. One second. It's mountains and it's definitely oh yeah, mountains. Mountains beyond mountains. <laughs> mountains beyond mountains. That mountains is, beyond mountains. That's a book? Yes, it is a book. And it's a beautiful book about a doctor that went to Haiti. And again, uh, you'll if you read the movie, it's one of the beautiful quote in that book. That's the name of the book. It says 
every mountain has a mountain beyond it. And when he said that, it wasn't a actual mountain, it was one internally. So when we have a mountain internally, we're overcoming, which was mine was in Detroit. There's another one we all have to overcome as well. So it's a good book. Great. Thank you for that. That's a wrap from the John Freaking Muir Studio. Andrew, before we, before we sign off, are you want to give any shout outs to any friends or family who might be listening? Uh, yeah, I would like to thank, you know, my mom, my grandmother. Um, I love you all, my brother and sister, everyone at Hoka, Sia Summit, and Mbidi for believing in me, and all my friends that have been with me. And for my friends from Kilimanjaro to Argentina, Tanzania to Argentina to Malaysia, around the world, I wouldn't be here without you. So I'm not going to let you down. I love you all. And every time I step on a mountain, I'm thinking of you. So thank you. All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you're about to lose your lunch as you're springing to the top of Kilimanjaro. The trail (laughs) is the trail. Embrace the suck. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Doc. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.